0: This isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi, everyone, and welcome to That UFO Podcast. The other show, we are on KGRA Digital Broadcasting. Thanks to the guys from UCR who have just been on before us. And I think Jane, Texas UFO Jane, might have been with them as well for that one. I know she was joining for the shows, so thank you very much to those folks. Uh, Really excited for this one. I'm flying solo for this one. Dan has the night off, so he's going to be doing the editing anyway. But really looking forward to speaking to author, uh, journalist, Former comedian, all-round good guy, uh, Christopher Plain from the Debrief. Chris, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on. You know, that's how you know you're the big-time guest when you and Dan get together and Dan goes, "Yeah, I don't, I don't really need to be there for this, right? You get, you can handle that." So that's it's how really, you know I'm big time.
0: <laughs> it's really funny. He's he's never missed a Lou Elizondo interview um, or yeah, a George Matt. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's he's always on for those. Like I've heard him cancel major events. Like I mean they really missed him at that funeral but you know it was like yeah he's he's always on for the big ones but yeah yep. um dan is actually missing this because he is on witness citizen with sean rash so wow. that is his he was actually going to be on this one so he's gave me some good questions for you as well so uh listen chris uh, we're going to talk a little bit firstly about your background and i just want to know off the bat what was your interest in, in ufos growing up
1: uh, so I, there's two aspects of the story I've uh, mentioned in previous podcasts, but basically, uh, in May of 77, right before I turned eight years old, uh, I saw the UFO. So I was a little kid and there wasn't really any context, at least for me, as I tell people, the movie Close Encounters was, uh, of the third kind was still a few months away from coming out and would be a few years before I would see it. And it was just a triangle real high in the sky. It didn't have any uh, observables other than silent. But, you know, I had that. It just was kind of in the brain as something weird. It wasn't really until I became an adult that I had context for it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the other half of it is there's a television show that came on in the States in the 70s. It started that same year in the fall, as it turns out. And uh, it was called In Search Of. And it was hosted by Leonard Nimoy, who was Spock on Star Trek. And uh, I always tell people the best comparison is it was the predecessor to ancient aliens. They would do UFOs. They would do Loch Ness Monster, Atlantis, pyramids. Uh, but they would do uh, remote viewing. In those days, it was called Astral Projection in the 70s, but at least publicly. So um, that was that was the show that blew me away. I saw that show with my father, and uh, we would watch it religiously. And then in 1980, uh, they had um, uh, Jesse Marcel, the... Uh, intelligence officer who was the first on scene at Max Brazel's ranch in Corona outside of Roswell to pick up the debris. And that was that interview that you still see clips of to this day where he was a pretty old man at that point talking about what he saw or didn't see. And I was captivated and all through the wasteland of the pre-internet 80s and 90s, I read books, everything I could get my hands on every magazine article um, when, when uh, Bob Lazar's book came out brand new and ran out and get that when uh, Colonel Corso's book, the day after Roswell came out in the nineties ran out and got that. So that's kind of how that whole interest started. And uh, it's just been something I followed throughout my life on one hand, just with the curiosity to understand what it was. I saw as a little boy and then uh, just uh a general curiosity in science, in astronomy, and technology, the things I write about at the Debrief, and how I see those two worlds slowly but surely coming together as I age in my life, and I see science and UFOs getting ready to meet in the middle, and it's very exciting.
0: I think a lot of people can relate to that. Similar to myself, I I had that sighting when I was relatively young, always had an interest in kind of mysteries and watching VHS tapes about Loch Ness and Pyramids of Egypt and how they were built. And I remember you talk about those pre internet days. I had in it the encyclopedia in Carter, I think it was, and it was on a CD ROM and you would put it in and you could look up like. Basically, it was like an early Wikipedia, but on a CD. Yeah, and you right. could look up, oh, the pir- the pyramids, UFOs, aliens, and it might come up, it might not. And that was how I kept my interest just before the internet was kind of becoming a, a thing for everyone. So I think a lot of people listening will be able to to relate to that. Just before we get to the, again, how that bled into your life and your writing that you mentioned, you, you got into comedy writing. We talked just before we recorded about your your time doing stand-up. And we've got a, a question for for you from Michael Matuloni, and All he right. says he understands that you used to write jokes uh, for Michael on his shows on the debrief. Yeah. Why do you think it is that Michael never told any of those jokes?
1: <laughs> oh boy, Michael Matuloni! I would say Michael's not as bright as he looks. Probably that would be the easiest explanation.
0: L- Lou Jimenez said something similar to me, but we'll we'll pass by that and we'll we'll move on. <laughs> yeah
1: i've heard you know
0: squid i've heard squidding hates them off camera like they have a real rivalry yeah uh
1: i i spent two hours tearing those guys up on friday so i guess they decided to have you proxy bust my you know what I, I, I love it do
0: you know i i should say something about Lou, uh, Luis because uh, he forgot my name when he was introducing you and he was like oh and uh, dan at that ufo podcast and And there was a total silence and he was Andy, Andy, that's it. So hi, Luis. But yeah, it was a really good show. Really enjoyed listening to that. And um, I've tried to change this up a little bit because you you covered a lot of ground in that time. And we've got half the time as well. But listen, uh, people were asking me about your comedy writing. Um, Dan, my co-host, was mentioning, you know, it's a very different goal compared to things you write about for the debrief and yet Dan was mentioning to me he sees a lot of people in comedy and and writers making the jump to a more serious style of writing. Is that what pulled you in this direction, or was it just a total, you know, fork in the road?
1: Uh, So uh, I never set out to write news or uh, write for the debris for write science and technology. Uh, I did stand-up all through the 90s, as you mentioned, right into the early 2000s. At that point, I kind of transitioned into writing... Uh, commercially, so writing uh, the occasional TV script or movie script or writing stand-up for other comedians and uh, writing freelance stuff. I would get odd call for somebody was going to be on a a TV show and they needed a monologue or somebody was going to be. So I would get these kind of odd writing things. And uh, somewhere around 2010, I decided to write books. So I have three novels available right now. I have a couple more on the way and a couple more after that. So uh, I, I fully made the transition to from stage to writing across the 2000s. I would do a show here and there. By 2010, I was pretty much a writer. And this is what I was doing. I was like a lot of people during the pandemic last fall, last summer and last fall. Uh, I was just on the Internet. I was watching a uh Uh, unidentified with Lou Elizondo. And I said, you know, I think like a lot of people, you get tantalized by what's on TV and you go, all right, I'm going to dive deep. And I hadn't jumped back into UFOs on any deep level uh, for a number of years. And I always followed it, any story that came up, anything that popped up, you know, the uh, alien autopsy video, whatever it would be, any story would come to the fore, I would follow it. But I wouldn't really dive in. So I decided to dive in last fall. I was on UFO Twitter. And again, like, I don't really. I was new to my Twitter. I had had it, but I didn't really use it. And timing just happened that a couple of months before the debrief came out, I was following uh, Tim McMillan, one of my bosses at the debrief on Twitter. And he mentioned. uh, he teased that he had this big story coming, which turned out to be the story that launched the debrief. And I said, okay, I replied to him on Twitter, and I said, all right, I have three guesses. And I guessed three things of what I thought his story would be. And one of them, as it turns out, was really damn close to what he ultimately guessed, or what he wrote. And he replied to me, two of these three are incorrect. And it blew Twitter up within a day i went from 20 twitter followers to 200 because everybody in the ufo said hey if this guy can get tim mcmillan to reply to him i want to see what's going on there so tim and i started interacting occasionally online and because of that i was following the people he was following and i i like many fans was there on november 30th the day the debrief kicked off and About five days later, there was a posting up on Twitter that said, we're looking for writers at the Debrief. And I thought, like most authors, when you have books out to publish, there are only so many places you can go to promote those books. And I said, hey, here's something I know a lot about. I've been following UFOs my whole life. Uh, It's something I'm pretty well informed on. I'm not as current as, as the 2017 to current. There's a lot I'm picking up that's happened in the last few years. But but up until the 2010s, I felt pretty current. So I reached out to MJ and he says, yeah, I don't really need anyone to write about UFOs. I have plenty of UFO writers, me, Micah Hanks, Ryan Sprague, Jazz Shaw, who's amazing, uh, uh, Tim of course. He said, but do you have any interest in writing about science and technology? And I said, absolutely. I'm looking for a place to promote my books my books are fantasy and, and science fiction coming up. And I thought it was a perfect overlap. And next thing you knew, they had hired me, brought me on staff, and I'm uh, 10 months and change or so into that gig and having fun.
0: Yeah, it's been a huge success The Debrief and we all remember the build up oh, to yeah. it and the articles. And it's, it's broken some great stories. And I think the success is partly down to that variation in what they talk about. It's not just UFO news. So if there is that lull, which we have in the special in the UFO Twitterverse as everyone eats each other up for, for the, those breaks between the yep. news. You can go in there for a lot of different things as well. And I find myself doing that too, which which is fantastic. How do you find your style of writing fits into the structure with the overall team?
1: Woo! So that took a while. I'm not going to lie. If I go back and read my debrief stories from the first couple of months, uh, I was constantly encouraged by the guys you're a good writer, you're doing a good job. but Uh, It's like any skill. It's like uh, uh, Michael Jordan trying to play golf, which was something, you know, trying to play baseball, which is something happened in the late 1990s when he tried to go from basketball. He was a world-class athlete. They're both sports, right? So I had the same thought here. I write comedy. I've written scripts and TV shows. I've written a couple of novels. How hard? And I used to write pretty regularly for a basketball website in the U.S. for a Lakers uh, because I live in Southern California. So I said, how hard can it be to write news? Well, as it turns out, when you're writing news, you're not writing in your own voice. It's not a first person. You're not telling a story or narrating. And the vast majority of my writing had happened in that method. So yeah, early on, it was a real pain. Like it wasn't something I was good at. It it took me a while to get a good rhythm with it. Uh, But now, yeah, I'm very proud of the work I put out over there. And it's fun because as you noted, uh, we still are breaking UFO stories. I tell people all the time, the debrief is like anyone else. We go through lulls. We go through these these periods where maybe it's not as hot of information. So that stuff is still coming. But in between, when I write stories about uh, Star Trek technologies that are coming closer to reality, or the world's most exclusive anti-gravity club, which I wrote about, which is a bunch of researchers, those sort of stories do really well because, as you pointed, the audience is not, we're a, not a one-note audience. I'm sure when you have private discussions with people, uh, guests, and fans of your show, it's not all just a UFO discussion. It's what brings us together. It's what brought me to the debrief and it what what led me to find those guys. But the stuff around it, the advancing technology, the search for life, uh, the, the headway we're making on things like, potential warp drives or these advanced propulsion things that we're seeing. It's really exciting to to write about and uh, stay on top of.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask you next anyway, Chris, is what right now is exciting you most about this subject? Because there's a lot going on and I can't emphasize enough, and I've said this a few times, that when people in the moment are complaining, there's no news, we've not had any new videos leak or some new photographs or where's the black triangle photo, If you actually take a step back and look at the timeline of the last year, there has been so much come out and so much news. It might not be that the news everyone always wants, but if you go back to those, you talked about the pre-internet days, even the 2000s to 2015, 16, there was nothing like what we're living through now in terms of UFO news. It was the same stuff for years at a time.
1: Nick, it was a 15-year wasteland. I, I tell people all the time, in 2001... When Dr. Greer did the um, uh, press club, the National Press Club event, where he essentially brought out all of these military witnesses, a lot of the people we see in the uh, James Fox movie, a lot of these experts, that was insane in 2001. We couldn't believe that was happening. That was something UFO fans and researchers had been waiting decades to have happen. And within a few months... The U.S. Uh, here in the States, we were in a war with the uh, Middle East. We were, you know, in September 11th was only about, you know, four months after the National Press Club event, and it just kicked it off the news. And it really wasn't until 2016, 2017 when things kicked back off. Yeah, I tell people all the time, I say, the I don't have the expert knowledge of a John Greenwald. I don't have the insider's knowledge of a Lou Elizondo i don't have the uh, little black look of a tim mcmillan that can call these people and get information but what i can tell you from following this since 1977 is there is no time like right now we have the the top astronomy professor at harvard running a hunt for ufo project yeah. the head of nasa is out talking about hunting for ufos when he talks about the search for extraterrestrial life He'll start the conversation on Mars, and he'll finish the conversation talking about the 60 Minutes interview with what the pilot saw. And he sews those two things together. The Department of Defense is looking into it. We have more scientists, more researchers, more intelligent people looking into this topic than the rest of history put together. It really feels that way. It really feels. So I tell people all the time, you can get two things one is what you said a video a photo a a testimony that's irrefutable you can also get people hunting for those things so it's true that while we're not getting the ones we want right away what we are getting is an army of interested people journalists researchers podcasters everybody working in the same direction this is unprecedented. It's never been like this in my lifetime. I, I never would have thought five years ago I'd be doing interviews talking about UFOs because I was, you know, secretly trying to sell some of my books. I had no idea. And here we are. There are, I get interviews from my PR director regularly, Chrissy, saying, do you want to do this interview? Do you want to go on that ship? There is more momentum and more energy behind this than ever. And I feel like that creates a matter of time situation. I think we're in a matter of time before we have the things everyone wants. And I wouldn't have said that even five years ago.
0: Well, I'll ask you why now, though, because like you say, if you look at the in the early 2000s, we had the press club event, Stephen Greer and, and co. Uh, and came out and said what they said, some incredible testimony. And then... It seemed nothing. And then we fast forward to just a few weeks ago, Robert Salas put together a group very similar and came out with, again, historic military testimony talking about, you know, deactivation of nuclear weapons and various sightings. And that seems to have gathered momentum. Do you think it's just a case of it was the right time to rehash that because of what's going on? But also, why do you think all this is going on now?
1: so i think there's a number of factors at work i think the single largest motivating factor uh for the latest wave popped up in 2017 with those videos and lou elizondo and chris mellon and all of that but i think there was a groundwork being laid by from ancient aliens to the history channel to the discovery channel to other podcasts And the thing i tell people all the time to keep in mind is we're talking about a generational difference from stephen greer to now that is 20 years ago when they mark generations in the united states historically like we have the baby boomers well that was 1946 to more or less 64. it's an 18 year run gen xers are more or less 65 to 80 or 81 about 16 years so from 2001 to 2020 what has happened on this planet is we've lost a bunch of older skeptical people who were born and raised in the time where simply the idea of going to space, simply the idea of sending a satellite up or going to the moon or those things were much more insane and it was replaced by an entire generation of people that grew up watching ancient aliens for fun on a Sunday and being in a much more modern scientific environment. So I think somebody who's watching an analog television in 1947, if they were lucky enough to have a television, might find the idea of a visitor from another planet in a technological ship or a probe from another planet completely outlandish. But in 2021, when we're sending probes to other planets that poke around and drive around and look for things, it just seems, and another thing I point to all the time, exoplanets you know before 1995 we didn't know there were any and i can tell you for people my age and older i was well into my 20s when that happened and it was something that was used as an argument against ufos and alien life is there aren't even planets out there where are these supposed aliens if they're et forget time travelers or any of the others but just the first premise the extraterrestrial premise how do you support that if there aren't other planets, if they're not in the habitable zones. So I think all of these things, they think science, technology, and a whole new generation. Sonny White told me, he's a a former NASA engineer who's the pioneer in the work drive, Harold Sonny White, and he told me that across colleges and across universities, people are writing Ph.D. theses about UFOs, about exotic propulsion, about anti-gravity. It is an entire army there is an entire general a whole new generation of people that were raised saying I'm open to the idea of UFOs and that's what it really takes to to uh, research something is to just be open to it
0: as someone who's grown up with that old school ufology in the background and then to see what's happening now with your interest and your your writing with the debrief do you think the two can coexist because there does seem to be i I notice it in the uk particularly a very old school ufologist group where it's the same old heads who for a long long time have discussed the same cases and they don't necessarily take to what's happened the last four years and they're very skeptical and to be fair i can see why but then you've also got people i suppose i have to put my hand up although i've had a lifelong interest my face or voice being out there in the subject is pretty recent i can't hide that that's been the last 18 months and what got me involved in such a way was to the stars academy unidentified the series yeah. and and having questions i didn't feel were being asked on other platforms at the time which why i started the podcast What do you think of those two groups and the coexisting of both, or do you think one has to be left behind for the other to move on?
1: Uh, So uh, my grandmother used to tell me that people don't change their minds, that old people with old ideas die and new people with new ideas are born. Now, I don't think that's uh, 100% the case, I do think, but... Uh, the odds of you changing your mind as you age go down. I can tell you I'm in my early 50s and I change my mind a lot less than I used to <laughs> because you have a lot more information to go on and a lot more experience to go on. So if somebody tells me, hey, I'm pretty sure the Loch Ness Monster is a dinosaur left over, I say, well, that was something I believed when I was 11 years old. But after a lifetime of reading about science and reading about uh, – uh, animal behavior, reading about biology, understanding how evolution works—I feel like there's a very, very, very unlikely reality that Nessie is a dinosaur that's been living in a lake for a few million years, much less an offspring of a dinosaur. But, you know, and again, so I, I think that's the big change. I, I do think something I've noted that I think is interesting about the current environment is a drift from the et hypothesis to the other options and i don't think that's a bad thing i want to be clear on that i don't think that looking into the idea of other non-human technological intelligences being a dimensional or time or uh you know uh some sort of other origin so i think that's the biggest difference i see from the old school researchers and the new school is as i said for the old school researchers in their era the idea of aliens from another planet i said was so foreign might as well have been time travelers the interdimensional in 2021 when a college student is turning on tv and going hey i want to learn going to the internet learning about aliens so much has changed the exoplanets the extreme biology the extremophiles on our own planets the confirmation of water on Mars, water on a bunch of other plants, so much more modern environment that the ETI hypothesis has almost become too simple. And I don't say that in a bad way. I just think a lot of people have gone like, well, that's almost a given. It almost feels like it's a given that we're going to find life elsewhere, whether they're coming here or not. You still get into the Neil deGrasse Tyson argument of distance and you still get into the, uh, Drake equation and the Fermi paradox and a lot of these other issues. But, yeah, I really do think that what's going to happen is either we're going to get something significant in disclosure that is significant enough that it it answers those questions, that it addresses that Jacques Vallée and Nick McGrillen are both happy with the answer, right? Like a guy who was doing this in the 1960s, And a guy who's been doing this as you said for 18 months publicly that both of you will be you know if we have a ship and bodies from roswell i think everybody goes hey all right we and we find that i think there's a general agreement but what i think is more likely to happen is that old people with old ideas will die and new people with new ideas will born and there will be a time that if this issue is not solved in 20 or 30 years which i actually do think it will be for a number of reasons but. If it's not solved in the next 20 or 30 years, there may be a new generation of people coming when you're my age or you guys are even older than me talking about ah time travelers and extra dimensional. That's not that outside of the box. We're talking about supernatural ghosts from the future or something.
0: So. I was going to ask you something you've talked about there is you've touched on your own personal theories of what may or may not be happening. Do you subscribe to, you've said it's almost too simple now that it's aliens coming from another planet. That seems like such an old notion, but still a fascinating one. What are, what are some of your thoughts as to what may be going on, Chris?
1: So here's the way I like to approach a question like that is, like everyone else, I don't know, right? But my guesses are, I would not be the least bit surprised if we're dealing with a range of things, and here's why. the The Earth has been here for a little over four billion years. The universe has probably been around for thirteen point eight billion years, or almost fourteen. So there's a, a very good chance that if there is life on other planets, at least some of us, some of it, has anywhere from a ten billion to a 10 minute start on us, you know, is ahead of us to some degree. Yeah, so I don't think it's impossible for something like Oumuamua, which was a big astronomical object that passed through our solar system, something like that, even if that one specifically wasn't an alien probe, I think we could see something like that from a society that's not that much more advanced than ours, we could put something like Oumuamua with a solar sail and pointed at another star. It would take a thousand years to get there, uh, but we could do that. So, uh, and then things like the Tic Tac, you know, again, like feels like a von Neumann probe to me. It feels like a, a, something more advanced than somebody that would send the, the uh, Oumuamua. And so I wouldn't be surprised, again, like think of an interesting. Uh, archaeological location on the planet Earth. I think of an isolated tribe in Brazil that are hunter gatherers that are living a hunter gatherer existence, and we study them, right? So uh, uh, somebody from Brazil who may not have a ton of money and works at the local community college might go study them on the ground with uh, binoculars and telescopes, and somebody with a little bigger company budget might fly over them and study them from the air with airplanes and in the US we might study them with satellites and that's just the different technological levels on our uh, you know our planet studying this thing so i wouldn't be the i it would feel more natural it feels like it would make more sense if we were being studied by multiple phenomena and for no other reason than we're just damn interesting, you know, for tens of thousands of years, humans have pretty much biologically been the same. We've only been using electricity for like a 100 something, you know, not even 200 years. We haven't even had computers for 100 years. We've only had aviation for a little over 100 years. So we're at a really compelling time. If I were on another planet and we were 1,000 years in advance of where humans are now, we're exactly the type of place i would want to study and keep an eye on and evaluate if for no other reason than scientific curiosity so i think a range of possibilities are there i'll admit i'm a little old school i'm a little less inclined to time travelers from the future because i have a strong feeling that going backwards in time is not a doable thing um M theorists and string theorists would argue with me, but I would tell them, go find some magnetic monopoles and then we'll talk. But, you know, so there are scientific reasons why I feel that's a a difficult proposition to sell me. Same way with supernatural answers. But as I tell people all the time, until we have an answer to does God exist, and where does life come from, and why are we all here? All supernatural answers have to be on the table.
0: I think with the the time travel stuff again you look at it from a very human perspective that can you turn that clock back and go to five minutes ago or can we turn it forward and go to five minutes from now but potentially you have to look at time as being something that can be understood or observed in different ways by something else that's evolved and you hear even Bill Nelson from NASA talk about other universes where somewhere else the concept of time might be totally different and just something that we can't even understand but Like you say, it could still potentially be time travel. Who knows? And it's a very interesting idea, again, about you see a tribe in Brazil who is kind of untouched by human hands. And yes, someone's at a distance looking through binoculars. Someone else, different group is flying overhead. You know, the the government can be watching via satellite potentially. And I always wonder, again, if, if those different groups who are all watching, are they aware of each other? And I think the same with some of this umbrella phenomena you wonder if it was different entities and species and an interdimensional race a, a race from another planet are they even aware of each other too and that that always interests me but that's a whole it's a whole other conversation to be And down I think the it's of. a
1: great really interesting conversation. I would I would guess with no knowledge at all you can start at the top of the tree and go down so whoever the most advanced species or or advanced uh, in, intelligence of that is might have a very good feeling that Oh, yeah, here's these humans on this planet. Here's these interdimensionals running around. I see a couple of time travelers. There might be somebody at the top level that sees it all and knows it all. Or, yes, it could be very well be the possibility that the only awareness they have of each other is anecdotally through us. They go, well, we're observing humans, and they're talking about all these other things, so it must be there, but we're not observing it. Yeah, who knows? That's an excellent, would love to do an episode on that.
0: Oh, yeah, that's that's a whole other one in itself. Um, and we mentioned, or I mentioned, Bill Nelson, uh, looking at the comments of the NASA director, and you talked about the Galileo project also yourself, and it seems the narrative between science and UAPs is starting to shift in a very positive way. Oh, yeah. We're finding our scientific trailblazers and problem solvers starting to get involved from the mainstream into this subject. What are your thoughts on where that could potentially go? Is it just a flash in the pan? Or do you see this kind of gaining some momentum?
1: So science likes results, right? Science likes provable, repeatable results. So could I imagine a scenario where three to five years from now, uh, Avi Loeb is holding a press conference with his hands up going, we didn't find anything. And Bill Nelson from NASA is holding a press conference saying the same thing. And the DOD says, we're not going to release any secret information. But what we can tell you is, we pretty much accounted for those under 143 events. And, you know, are those scenarios there? Sure. I think that that possibility exists. I think we have to be open to the possibility that uh, the phenomenon is of a nature that it can uh, avoid being evaluated scientifically by humans who are, again, like pretty brand new at things like telescopes and computers and stuff. So it just made, the, I think that's a reality. We all have to be comfortable with that. With that being said, somebody like Bill Nelson, who, by all appearances, has had the opportunity to see uh, the DOD material, he seems because of his connection with the Senate Intelligence Committee beforehand and yes. his, you know, uh, uh, role there and the way he talks about it. And same thing with Lou Elizondo. You know, I've never talked to Lou, but the guys I work with have relationships with him and. You know, I don't want to share anything private, but I can just tell you that the impression I get from people like Lou Elizondo and Lou Mel- uh, Chris Mellon and, and Bill Nelson and these people that have seen these videos, have seen these other photos, uh, are 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 definitely sold that there's a real phenomenon and a real non-human technological intelligence phenomenon. So I think, you know this is all we've asked for people, mind you. And again, I I think this is what we're asking for now. But this is what we've all asked for is two things. One, we want the smartest people on the planet looking into the problem in a serious way. And I say a problem because I was at the uh, AIAA convention where pilots and engineers were talking about the threat to mid air collision where Ryan Graves a uh, former naval aviator who was one of the witnesses on 60 Minutes said, I believe it is a matter of time before we have a midair collision, and I'm surprised we haven't had one yet. So with a situation like that, with Bill Nelson saying the other day that there are 300 more incidents that weren't even talked about in the report, he said that at that that uh, Virginia talk he, he gave the other day, I just think we're poised for something to happen. I just can't imagine... If, the, if you take it for granted that the phenomenon is real and you take it for granted that we have this many people looking at it now and you take it for granted that people like Lou aren't lying, that there are better video and better photos and all these things, man, it sure feels like we're going to learn something.
0: Now, you mentioned obviously Project Galileo managed to secure uh, independent funding from yeah. a variety of investors and backers and it's uh, through Harvard, so it's all official, which is great. Do you see more programs like that being funded? And how long before this goes boom in the mainstream, if indeed you think it will? Because surely that's where it needs to go to go from people like Avi going out with the the begging bowl to people throwing their money at this in a really serious way.
1: So in uh, 1995, uh, Robert Bigelow started something called NIDS, the National Institute for the Discovery of Sciences. And uh, among other things, it really was designed to look into UFOs. And that was in the early days of the Internet. You could go on its website from in the late 90s and look everything up. I think we are in, a, in an era and moving into an era where we have way more than just one Robert Bigelow. You know, we have way more than one wealthy person who's willing to go to an Avi Loeb and say, what do you need? 1.7 million? That's a, that's a lunch tip to a billionaire, really. It's, it's something that they can hand over and not feel that money going out. I think we're in that environment. I think guys like Brandon Fugel doing what he's doing is a very wealthy man. I think there are other players. And again, I think we continue to move that way. If most of that money is still sitting in the hands of people 60 and over, which it probably is across the world, That money is going to move into my generation. It's going to move into the millennial generation. And those people want answers. So I think the idea of, you know, a a guy like Zuckerberg, if he just decided, I'd like to know if aliens are real. And he called up Avi Loeb and said, Forget $1.7 What if you had $500 million? How quickly could I get an answer, right? So I think we're going to see that. Will it be that big of a donation by one person? No. But that's the direction I see things going, is more wealthy people that grew up on ancient aliens that just want an answer and just want to know and want to know, is this a real danger? What's the military saying? And yeah, just an intellectual curiosity.
0: I really hope so, because again, Neil deGrasse Tyson's the name that everyone normally goes to in terms of their poo-pooing of the whole UFO, aliens coming from other places idea. And, And I can see why a man who's very serious like him is very defensive or puts his guard up when he talks about this subject. But what really confuses me is why a man who is a scientist at heart doesn't want to look into what could potentially be the biggest discovery in human history. Why wouldn't you want to know? And why why do you think more people like him at this time aren't jumping on the bandwagon, at least publicly? Maybe it's happening in the background, who knows? But why aren't they getting on board with this now when they see people like Avi Loeb, the names like Harvard coming into this, and uh, obviously the, the revelations from the US government from the last couple of years?
1: So uh, it is happening, first of all. I will say, like, when I attend these conventions, when I went to the AAIA convention, uh, there were six speakers there. Five of them were mainstream scientists and professors. One, uh, Philip Alieres, is from the European Space Agency. He's, uh, uh, you know, uh, we had Ted Rowe from NARCAP. I mean, the, the volume of people in that area. I don't want to speak negatively about Neil because I love somebody that comes on and talks about science and tries to be funny because it's something I try and do. It's, I try and bring that uh, joy to it because it is fun. It's the closest thing we have to magic for me is scientists going out and finding these impossible things and doing them, engineers doing these impossible things. So I love that. With that being said, I will just remind every everybody, neil degrasse tyson's just a guy man he's a guy who puts his pants on like the rest of us so he's very smart he's very well educated knows way more about these things than i will ever know when it comes to astronomy and astrophysics but what's interesting is when you talk to people who are at least as smart as neil degrasse tyson are very well informed in these areas they don't universally share his opinion that is not a universal opinion and i think if you're a public figure of the face of science like Neil is, I think you have a responsibility to exist in the most skeptical space. I think Neil's not doing a bad thing. I think he's doing a good thing for science by saying scientists want proof. I think what people like us are saying is the way I live my life is by odds. What do I think is most likely going on? Because you never know 100%. What is going on in your life? People are in 30 year marriages and find out their husband had a whole other family. So you never really know what's going on. You just operate on 99%, 1%. How sure am I? So I think for those, the rest of us, we can act like a civil jury and say the preponderance of the evidence, you know, 51% of a civil jury can rule in your favor, and that's what you need. You win. I think we can exist in that space as curious people. I think even scientists and researchers. But if you're in a role like Neil has, where you really are, I mean, you know, you say, why aren't more jumping on the bandwagon? I mean, besides him and maybe like Bill Nye, who would jump on? Are there that many high profile famous scientists that we would even be waiting to? Hey, who else is going to jump on the thing? We all really just want to hear Neil do it. And the reason we want to hear, and I do too, is because that will make it so real. If a guy that skeptical, who's that mainstream of a scientist, really did come along, Andy, and tell us, like, guys, I'm sold. I've seen the video. I've seen the clips. I've done, I think, aliens from another planet. I, I think a lot of people be like, hey, that's good enough for me. We convinced Mick West and Neil Tyson I'm good. So, I don't have a problem with Neil existing in that space. I think he does science a favor by standing up for it that way. But is it frustrating? Yeah. Does it make me look at him and go, dude, you're a scientist. Other scientists are looking at this. There's all this amazing evidence. Why are you skeptical to it? I think his position needs to be and continues to be science needs definitive reproducible results. So I will not change my mind. But I haven't ever heard him say he doesn't think it's a possibility. Does he think it's a low possibility? Sure. But he's a little older than me. He grew up, again, in an era where there was no exoplanets, where there was none of those were in the habitable zone, where water could exist, where we hadn't sent probes to other planets that roll around and take pictures and all that. So uh, I think it's a product of his generation, a product of his position, But I can tell you that the encouraging thing is it's not what I hear when I talk to mainstream scientists. I talk to researchers at the, because of my job at the Debrief, I talk to researchers around the globe at huge universities from France to England to South and Central America to the States to other parts of Europe to Asia. I talk to scientists everywhere. And I've only had one person tell me uh, you know, I'd rather not deal with the debrief because of your connection to UFOs. And that person's job is an astrobiologist. They're looking for life on another planet. And I think for people like that, they may feel it hinders their efforts. I'm looking for bacteria in a rock on a moon, and you guys are talking about dudes in a flying saucer. So I get that intellectual resistance from people who are trying to take it the scientific method. But uh, I will reiterate my main point. Neil's just a guy. There are plenty of avi lobes out there. There are plenty of really successful, really well-established scientists that you'll look you in the face and go, yeah, I'm, I'm totally open to the idea of UFOs and, and aliens visiting here
0: that's a very fair response and we're about to see again science helping us out here things like the james webb telescope going up into space and we have things like the lisa the laser interferometer space antenna and that's on the that horizon for gravity uh, gravitational wave detection mm-hmm. so this is from my co-host dan for anyone wondering where i've got the big words from all of a sudden uh, our ability in the universe uh, to see into the universe is about to get an exponential upgrade what are some of your hopes for the immediate future of science and its role in this?
1: This is so huge. The James Webb Telescope, LIGO, LISA, these other observatories, this is huge. Again, think about that, that a uh, 100 years ago, every telescope we had was parked on Earth looking up. 50 years, 60 years ago, they were all parked on the planet looking up. Now an observation like James Webb, an observatory like James Webb, will be up, it'll be at Lagrange 2, they confirmed for me on the UCR the other night. So that basically puts the sun on the other side of the Earth, lets it look into the cosmos in a deeper way than we've ever had. So again, the uncontacted tribe in Brazil is about to get a telescope of their own, right? Like we're that uncontacted tribe and we're about to have the opportunity to look into places we've never looked before. And what I think is going to be the biggest change that Webb brings us, besides just mapping the cosmos and adding so much more volume of information, is I think it will spot signs of biological life in the atmosphere of some exoplanets. And let me ask you this, Nick, no, I'm just kidding, Andy, (laughs) um, let me ask you this. If you were a kid in high school and you were taking science class and in the middle of science class they told you, oh yeah, there's uh, 20,000 exoplanets and we've already found signs of life around 30 of them. How weird would it seem that one of them sent a probe here? Right? Yeah, not at all, yeah. So I firmly believe... That as we've pro- progressed, the example I always use is Sputnik going up in 1947 or, or so, right around the same time as Roswell and these other things. Yuri Gagarin going up in 1957 in, in, in Russia. Uh, all of these steps that mainstream science and astronomy has taken have increased the odds of UFOs being visitors from another planet and not decreased them. So whether science or mainstream scientists believe it or not, really almost doesn't matter because they're they're slowly but surely building the case.
0: And you made the point earlier. I've I've said before, Chris, that you talk about why would another civilization send a probe here to fly about and do whatever, but we have a probe on Mars that every so often parks up and sets a little toy helicopter in there floats about a couple of feet and comes back down. And any observing race who watches that would think that's crazy. If you saw something like that here and described it, no, that's that's nuts. Why would anyone send that from another planet? We are doing it ourselves. So why wouldn't another civilization with 50 years, even technological head start, have something right. much, much better like we
1: no doubt will have in 50 years from now? I can tell you uh, in less than 50 years we could send a directed energy uh, satellite towards an exoplanet traveling at somewhere around 20% the speed of light. And I have a paper coming out on that, a researcher from uh, 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 an article about it, researcher at a university of California, Santa Barbara here in the U S and he's uh, with a team. They were funded by the same sunny white. I mentioned earlier from NASA and funded to do research on directed energy propulsion. Basically, what that is, is you put a satellite up in space, you point a laser at it, and you just push that satellite with laser light. You just keep the laser turned on. And imagine, you know, Proxima I don't know, three, four light years away. It's other plan- uh, exoplanets we've looked at are maybe like 10, 12 light years away. So sending a, a probe at 15, 20% the speed of light To a planet that's only three or four light years away. It's a 12, 15, 20 year mission. We do missions like that all the time. We've been planning the manned Mars mission since the 90s to go up in the 2030s. And that's been planned for 40 years. So... Uh, yeah, I, I I don't remember the exact question. I'm, I'm off in left field here. but
0: No, that's okay. And listen, in, in the remaining minutes, I want to get to a couple of listener questions because I had a few sent in. Uh, and this one, uh, Dan, my co-host, and Nick also sent in to say that on UCR recently, uh, you spoke about a scientist having made an actual warp bubble. Can yeah. you expand on that? How big was it? How long did it last? And how long till we can float around to Alpha Centauri?
1: It's almost like if I were a reporter, rather than expanding on it, I would write a whole story about it, right? So I'm being a wise guy. No, that's what's coming. So um, where are we now? We're in the first week of November. Um, I would say by Thanksgiving, I will be able to release that story. I've communicated with the researcher multiple times. I've been provided a lot of information. I think the answers everyone wants... How long was this warp bubble created? How big was it? How can we scale it up to put a ship in it? Like, what are what are the ins and outs of that thing I announced? I will be putting a full Debrief feature out on it. So typically when I release a feature at the Debrief, that's like a magazine style, like 3,000 word multi-page story. And that's what I'm working on. So um, look for that. It'll be a... Either a Thanksgiving present here in the States or an early Christmas present, hopefully, uh, for everyone. But uh, one way or another, I will get that out this year uh, once I have the remaining things I need from the people involved and the approvals to put certain pieces of information out. But yes, uh, it's real. It happened. It's a mainstream researcher uh, that's well known. And uh, it, it happened. They made the bubble. It's a real thing.
0: I think I have to follow up just one question that comes off the back of that. And this is for all the listeners out there who aren't in the United States. When is Thanksgiving? Because to us, that's just a, a November thing. November 25th this
1: year. There it's you always okay. a Thursday. So the date moves about. This year, it's my little brother's birthday. So I'll, it's easy to remember it's November 25th.
0: And I hope you're giving your little brother uh, the Harlem of Ors book one, two, and three, the set, just to get the names of your books in there for you, Chris, that we'll, I, we'll talk about. I, I appreciate
1: it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's all right. The links will be in the description anyway. Um, we had a question from uh, Carl, and he says, is Chris familiar with David Perez and his VED drive?
1: Uh, a little bit. That's the um, the guy who had the uh, patent, the US patent. Um I'm, I'm a little familiar with it. It's something uh, is on the list to be looked into. I have the helicity Drive and a few other advanced propulsion systems. I'm kind of working my way through. So it's a fair question. I believe that's who that is. I think it was somebody who was working with the Department of Defense and all of a sudden people saw this patent pop up online for basically like an anti-gravity uh, device, an anti-gravity drive. I think that's who that is. Yeah, I can I tell you, and I've mentioned this previously, Uh, In the field of anti-gravity, I have a pretty exciting story coming before the end of the year as well.
0: Awesome. One last question from regular contributor Dave. Uh, What do you think of the work going on around apparently recovered metamaterials at the moment? Uh, Where do you think it's got to? Uh, And does the apparently molecular layering of some of the materials indicate a technology beyond ours?
1: So... uh, I would say if you found a crashed ship in, say, 1947, somewhere outside of New Mexico, and it was designed using technology we use in 2021 in material science, it might be really hard to understand or grasp its use. So I think it might be altogether be possible that if we do have such material, we're still not completely sure the method or the use or whatever. What I will tell you, Andy, is in... In modern science, and I've written more than one story about it, we are designing things one molecule at a time. Things like graphene and these other two-dimensional materials, we are now doing that. So we are designing at the molecular level. So uh, advanced materials, uh, layering of 2D materials, there's a science called twistronics, where you lay them and twist them, you get weird electromagnetic effects that may factor into things like warp drives or anti-gravity and things like that. So yeah, I, I metamaterials is as significant. A, you know what the stuff is made of is significant as what we try and make it do. So the computer programs and the knowledge and the information we put into doing something, but the material itself is as critical as science as anything else. So uh, yeah, I think we're moving. Uh, Moving ahead, as far as the things that may or may not be in some hands of some humans that weren't ours that are being tested and maybe a peer-reviewed paper, all that, I'm told that's all still happening and all still coming. Those are the type of questions I ask at the debrief. Those are the type of questions I ask Tim and Micah and MJ as I go, hey, what's going on with this or what's going on with that? Because they're tuned into those stories. So, yes, I'm under the impression that, that something is still pending there and that Lou Elizondo may be part of that announcement. Even,
0: so. That would be good to hear. And, do you know, very quickly before we finish up, something that changed the way I think a little bit about some of the, the metamaterial stuff, when the Trinity book from Paola Harris and Jacques Vallée was released, there were pictures in there of a hinge or bracket-type object, mm-hmm. which was noted as being a potential metamaterial uh, in the book by Paola. And Jacques Vallée, on his interview with George Knapp just last week, discussed the idea that you know what that potentially was recovered from a craft but he gave he gave the idea that think about it it could have been something that if you were the US Army and you found a craft you would have to at the time prop it up you would be inside investigating and you would have your own equipment and it could potentially be something from the US Army's own equipment that was left inside one of these craft which was then found in the desert or taken away Hence, it. it would have potentially radioactive properties and technically be a metamaterial, but it's actually something of ours that was left on board uh, an exotic craft. And I just thought, do you know what? It's a great point from Jacques Vallée. Yeah. And of course, he's made many, but just to sometimes take a step back and think about these things a little bit, it doesn't always have to be one or the other. It could be something else in that kind of gray area, which I thought was a really interesting way to, to look at That's
1: that. Why I love having so many smart people in this field. You know, I know they're... There are many quarters of YouTube and Twitter that we could go hang out and we could, we could read about fashion or the Kardashians or whatever else we found interesting. Because one of my favorite things about this UFO in this research field is just how smart the people involved here are, and Jacques Vallée is no exception
0: i thought you were talking about me chris but yeah no chris
1: Yeah, no, i don't know i'm gonna say so far he have been pretty unimpressive my friend no just kidding
0: yeah don't, uh, and, and the feeling's mutual the yes feelings right you're close. like yeah chris
1: where's that character from the ucr interview that guy yeah, was on I'm fire how do i get him
0: i'm just looking for the delete button but listen right. chris we've run out of time chris how can people find you and find your work and follow what you do
1: The easiest two places are thedebrief.org. I'm a head science writer. I write regularly over there. I have at least three stories every week coming out. And then if you want to follow me personally, the easiest is just Twitter. At Plain, which is my last name, underscore fiction. So at Plain, underscore fiction. And I'm over there tweeting the wise guy stuff all the time.
0: Chris, I'm already looking forward to the next time we can chat and hopefully we can do that before Christmas or Thanksgiving, which is the 25th of November here.
1: Right. I think uh, I have some, as I said, I, I have probably three pretty significant stories planned to roll out between now and the end of the year. And uh, Andy, if you'd like to have me on to come talk about, I would love to. That would be fun
0: of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, UAP, And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see.